Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a pair of very special guests to interview. I'm delighted to welcome back our old friend and Lost in Space super aficionado, Mr. Mike Clark, and he's accompanied today by his friend and colleague, Mr. Paul Lublener. Both Mike and Paul have been lifelong fans of the fantasy worlds that Irwin Allen created on his 1960s TV series. Today they are well known to the Lost in Space fan community for collaborating on the fantastic documentary film Restoring the Gemini 12. The film, which Mr. Clark produced in 2016, has over 400,000 views on YouTube and it chronicles Paul's amazing work restoring to original condition the 50-year-old, four-foot filming miniature of the Robinson spacecraft that was used to produce special effects shots for the unaired pilot No Place to Hide. After Lost in Space was picked up by CBS in 1965, much of that special effects footage would be recycled in several episodes of the series and the Gemini 12 would be redesignated as the Jupiter 2. Recently, Paul and Mike have teamed up again for a new follow-up film that takes the story of the Gemini 12 model to a whole nother level, literally. That film, titled Relaunching the Gemini 12, is being released on YouTube in three parts over the first few weeks of August 2020 and it documents their effort to recreate one of the most iconic special effects sequences ever seen on Lost in Space, employing virtually the same techniques that were used to produce the original shots. Before we speak with them, a little background information on our guests. Mike Clark has had a long career in television, behind the camera and on the production side of things. He also had a 15-year career as a feature writer for the classic sci-fi film and TV magazine, Starlog. During his career, he's interviewed most of the original cast members of Lost in Space, and some of the behind-the-scenes creators of the series, including Erwin Allen himself. As a result, he's become something of a recognized expert on the classic series. Today, Mike resides in Southern California and runs his own video production company, Clark Media Productions. Paul Lubliner is the CEO of Highliners, producer of highly detailed scale model train kits and parts, which he founded over 30 years ago in San Diego. 
Over the past several years, Paul has used his extensive expertise as a master mold maker and fabricator of scale parts for model train locomotives to pursue another passion, restoring classic Irwin Allen film miniatures, including the original four-foot Seaview model, the two wood patterns for the original flying sub-models, and of course, the original Gemini 12 filming miniature. Paul also created the screen-accurate eight-foot Seaview model replica used in Kevin Burns' TV special, The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen. For this new three-part documentary series, relaunching the Gemini 12, Paul constructed a duplicate one-to-one scale Gemini 12 replica, complete with spinning radar, fusion core, and Lidecker tubes, just like the original model used by L.B. Abbott's Fox Special Effects crew in 1965. We'll talk more with our guests about that replica and what it was used for, as well as a lot of other fascinating details about their new film project. You're in for a real treat for your ears, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Paul Lubliner and Mike Clark. Mike Clark, welcome back to Alpha Control. Hey there, Elaine. It's great to be back. And thanks for bringing along your partner in crime, so to speak, Mr. Paul Lubliner. Hey, Paul. Hi there. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for allowing me an early peek at your amazing new film, Relaunching the Gemini 12. And all I can say is, wow, I didn't think your first film could be topped, but this is really something incredible. Thank you, Lane. We put a lot of work into it. Uh, We actually started this production back in October of 2018. Uh, and it took us quite a while and several different shoots to get it all done. Well, you can really tell you put a lot of effort into it. And there's a compelling story that goes along with the whole video. And I want to hear all about it. But, you know, Mike, when we spoke, can you believe it? It was two years ago, the first time. We covered a lot of real estate, Irwin Allen related. But we really didn't talk much about your earlier film, Restoring the Gemini 12. And I thought for context, perhaps you gentlemen would like to give us a a brief overview of that project and perhaps how it led into this new endeavor. Uh, Paul and I had actually met many years ago, back in the late 80s, or early 90s, because we're both Irwin Allen fans. And Paul happens to be the number one expert on the Seaview and all the things that go along with the Seaview, the measurements, uh, the draft and, and, and everything. And he has built several replicas. He's had the opportunity to study the original uh, sea view. And also, he restored the number one sea view that was ever built for mm. the feature film and used in Admiral Nelson's cabin. So Paul and I, have sharing that similar interest in Irwin Allen projects, we, we certainly got along from the get-go because, you know, this guy is like an amazing expert on the sea view and other other things that we can talk about. Oh, that's cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's incredible. I think we might get a peek of that uh, sea view in one of the clips during this new film. If I think I saw it sitting in your kitchen or living room somewhere in there, Paul. I'm not sure. Yeah, that is a uh, first-generation fiberglass and epoxy casting made directly from the original restored wooden plaster original, except that it's been refined, finished, straightened out, all the asymmetry corrected. So it's a museum quality, but original four-foot Seaview miniature. 
Yeah. And it's, it's against the wall between myself and Glenn Loughborough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I should also mention, Lane, that Paul supplied a replica eight-foot sea view for the Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen TV special back in 1995. And, Paul, wasn't there a couple of other uh, miniatures you supplied for that? Not in that instance, but I did do some uh, work lighting and revising the flying sub made by Greg Nicotero that was seen uh-huh. in that shoot with uh, the great June Lockhart. But wasn't there a fellow named Mike Clark who wrote the script for that shoot? Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah, I wrote the Lost in Space and Voyage sections for the Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen. And uh, so, uh, you know, Paul and I, in a way, have worked on uh, projects before we did Restoring the Gemini 12. So, you know, our, our great love of Voyage has bonded us over the years. So it's, it's probably been about 25 years or more that we've been uh, doing this. That is cool. That is cool. Yeah. So this Gemini 12 restoration project, that seemed like a natural, I guess, to produce a new film for, huh? When Andre delivered the uh, heat-damaged miniature, I looked at it and my actual thoughts were, what have I gotten myself into? Mm. I didn't know if I could fix it because it was really, Mike said, it looked like a melted candy bar. Yeah. And it was very slow and painstaking, but I documented just about every step. And from that, Mike suggested, why don't we see if we can't make this into a video before it was actually finished. So somewhere in the middle of the restoration, Mike began throwing some ideas at me and I bounced some of my ideas off of him and it went from there. Yeah. I should mention, Lane, that my history with the miniature goes back further than than Paul's because I originally saw it at a 1980 Hollywood memorabilia auction held in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the Gemini 12, which was being uh, advertised as being a Jupiter 2, but it wasn't. It was the Gemini 12, the original pilot miniature, was on sale along with the Hero Flying Sub from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and a few other miniatures from uh, City Beneath the Sea, uh, a replica Robbie the Robot, an original color Superman uh, outfit from the mm-hmm. 1950s. And so this auction was, was going on. I went there. My writing partner, Bill Cotter, went too. But I didn't have the $500 minimum bid to, to put up for the Gemini 12, much to my sorrow. And uh, after that auction was over and it disappeared, I always wondered where it went because, you know, the decades were piling up and piling up. And suddenly uh, it appeared with Paul in 2015 at the uh, Hollywood Autograph Show in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. It's interesting you you talk about Gemini 12 versus Jupiter 2. First of all, let's start with Gemini. Uh, This is something you clear up in the uh, second film. There was a controversy about whether it was Gemini or Gemini, and uh, (laughs) we've, we've settled on Gemini because that's what they actually called it in the pilot film. But, Paul, one of the things I'd like for you to clarify a little bit, and you go over this in the first film, but just for the benefit of the listeners here, too, what was the big difference between the Gemini 12 and the Jupiter 2? Because there are some differences, aren't there? They're actually uh, visible once they're pointed out. But the top of the saucer, above the belt rail, which is the widest portion, they're identical. But Mm -hmm. aside from that, the windows are significantly larger, and the mullions, the bars between the three windows, are far more elaborate and actually match the contour of the ship. 
Oh. Below the belt whale, it's a different contour, a bit more bulbous, and with a much smaller fusion core. And that's the key identifying feature. It's, it's a bit hard to judge the window size, but the fusion core is very large on a Gemini 12, and the overall look of the ship is a good deal more slender. So when I said in the original uh, video, I think it's the better-looking older brother, it's a matter of opinion. But I still hold that opinion because the ship was sleeker, but there's obviously no room for all of the equipment they had over the three-season run of the show. Oh, yeah. I would say you should describe the Gemini 12 as a one-story ship, and the Jupiter 2 is a two-story two ship and sometimes a three-story ship. That's correct. You're right, Mike. And was the Gemini 12 designed to have landing gear? Because I know the Jupiter 2 did. Actually, the ship is absolutely smooth. There's no portholes. There's no scribe line for a sliding door. There's no egress entry or exit depicted at all on a miniature. It is absolutely smooth. More or less like the Clatu uh, ship of the day the Earth stood still. When that opened and closed, every scene disappeared. Yeah, so. yeah. Very cool. So, like you said, this melted candy bar lands in your lap and you go through, in very fascinating detail, what it took to restore it. And you actually called it more of a rescue than a restoration, I guess, because of the shape it was in, right? Yeah, there was on the top, if you look at the front of the windows, there was an interior bulkhead just to the left of the windows, looking head-on at it, that had the contour without a major deformation. And that is what I used to establish the original shape. There on the underside was very fortunately another instance where the original contour was intact. But 90-something percent of the surface of the thing was wonky, mm -hmm. to be mildly put. I actually was contemplating making a new pattern instead of trying to save this. And a fellow who came by that afternoon that it was he said, I heard you got it. I said, can I come over and look? I said, sure, why not? And uh, he convinced me that I really should go ahead, commit suicide, restoring this thing. <laughs> spend, spend the better part of seven weeks going over every square inch, every square centimeter, reworking the surface to get it back to what it was. And it, it did go back, but it was not an easy task. Oh. I, I think Paul should mention also that the reason that ship was in such bad shape is because most miniatures of the time in the mid-60s were made from multiple layers of fiberglass, but the Gemini right. 12 wasn't. And why was that, Paul? Well, the ship had to fly on wires at Red Rock Canyon for the key crash scene in the pilot episode, which, of course, was shot in color, second unit, mm -hmm. with a Lidecker uh, rig with, I believe it was Howard Lidecker directing it under mm -hmm. the auspices of L.B. Abbott the Great, and they had to keep the weight down. Back in the day, even though epoxy resins had been developed during the Second World War, pre-World War II, fiberglass boats and whatnot were brand new and made with the more primitive polyester resin, and that is susceptible to heat. Mm. It's less susceptible if there are multiple layers of fiberglass. But to keep this miniature light, they made it of one layer of fiberglass with six internal quarter-inch plywood bulkheads, and that was it. And in that, they had to install heavy batteries, a motor for spinning the fusion core and the radar on top, which is, for lack of a better word, it looked like a radar in the yeah. pilot episode, and lights. So the majority of the weight in the original miniature 
was in the batteries in the motor. The ship was made so light that in time, even if it would have been stored well, it would have shifted its shape slightly. But the storage that befell this miniature was in a non-air-conditioned environment, and it just began to unfold itself everywhere from... And also, when they hacked it up for City Beneath the Sea, that certainly didn't help the strength of the unit. And one of the things that we were so amazed at in the restoring the Gemini 12 tape is that when Paul was photographing this, once he had gotten all the paint and Bondo off that that miniature, you could kind of see through it. Yeah, the fiberglass was that thin, you could actually... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I had my hand on the inside, and I could wiggle my fingers and look at it. You couldn't quite read a newspaper through it, but you could see your hand through it. The other thing that was interesting is you could see this thing had taken impacts. The perimeter where the top was joined to the bottom had a one-inch strap of uh, fiberglass reinforcement, so it held up. But the front around the windows, this thing was smacked into things because the fiberglass was actually shattered. And I had to repair that using a heat technique and multiple layers of resin on the inside afterwards. But it, it was more than just warped. It was, it was gouged. It was, had holes poked in it. It had all kinds of nonsense done to it. And uh, the city beneath the sea, as Mike pointed out, certainly didn't assist it by cutting the uh, 12 windows around the perimeter, which really weakened. Mm. But what's interesting between that first video and this video is we discovered who, what, and why this miniature in particular was restored and for what production. And we show that in this new video. Oh, yeah. That is a great little nugget. When you say restored, Paul, is that the correct word? Because they really did a terrible job. It was a botched restoration, wasn't it? As a prop guy myself, one doesn't um, pass judgment on other uh, (laughs) person's efforts. So thank you for correcting me on that, Mike. You are right. Yeah. yeah, but to be fair, I've been told by other people, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but none of these miniatures were designed to last forever. They weren't really built to be in a museum on display. They were built to be filmed and maybe repurposed or recycled, especially in an Irwin Allen production. But, you know, they weren't built to last 100 years, I take it. Absolutely right. They're no more permanent than the flats used on a set for live action actors. They are to be struck after the production. What matters is what's in the camp, what is on film. Mm -hmm. They're expendable. They were expensed. They were used and treated as though they were finished and disposed of after the production. Except one of the best examples of that is Irwin Allen's feature film, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, where he very shrewdly saved the sets, saved the miniatures, because in the back of his keen mind, he knew it was ready for television. Mm-hmm. And I think it's for itself in that regard. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of forward-thinking things he did. You know, I just have to mention right now, one of the things I think that makes this film, the first one and the second one, so compelling is, is that it's got a narrative structure. There's a whole story behind this. And, it, of course, it accelerates to light speed in the next video. Is that what you think made this film such a hit, Mike, the first one? You know, I was surprised at how popular the first one was because I figured, well, it is somewhat of a procedural thing. We added in, like you said, some story elements and some history and, you know, other things. But uh, when we had about 400,000 hits at a certain point, uh, I was kind of like, wow, people were really sticking with Paul's process because they realized what the effort that he had made. I mean, literally inch by inch on that miniature to bring it back to life. 
and the the comments that we were getting were incredible. You you rescued my childhood. You made me believe in humanity again. Mm. But what Paul did to bring that miniature back is not only uh, an impressive feat of of technical skill, but uh, something that I don't think. Uh, how many other people in the world would have the heart to to bring that thing back and to stick with it the way he did? And I think that follows through to the new video that we did. There's only two people in the world that I think could have done uh, relaunching the Gemini 12, and that's, of course, Paul, and me to a lesser extent, because there are other filmmakers out there, and maybe they could tell the story. But because of our history together, I thought that that was our strength, and that would make a, a very compelling story. And I should also mention that the original Restoring the Gemini 12, which is on the new YouTube channel I created for this new project. It's called the Gemini 12 channel. Mm. The original video was only like 22 minutes long, and the new video is about 47, 48 minutes long. And I decided at that point, well, you know what? We should spread it into three parts because... A lot of people, I think, would have the tendency to go right for the the climax, where we get the ship up in the air, but there's a lot of great history before that in relaunching the Gemini 12. And I can tell you, we have some spectacular scenes in the first section. Uh, we go to the Trona of Pentacles, where the chariot traveled, and we do that because we're dedicating the relaunching the Gemini 12 video to Bill Krieber, who was the original production designer mm. of the Lost in Space pilot. He created the Gemini 12 and the Chariot and the other things, uh, those freezing tubes and all that stuff. So we dedicate the video to him, and we explore what Bill Krieber has done by going out to the Trona Pinnacles and actually experiencing it for ourselves. A lot of props are only made for use in the studio or on the back lot. They took the chariot out to this kind of hostile location. They took it out to Red Rock Canyon, but also the Trona Pinnacles and drove it around. And so we wanted to, to see it for ourselves and understand the degree of difficulty. And as part of that, we got some comments from a guy named Gene Winfield, who is the last of the 50s and 60s uh, car customizers and vehicle customizers. He's the guy that actually built the original Galileo shuttlecraft from Star Trek, and he worked on many other projects, such as the first Blade Runner. And uh, mm. he, he's the last of them. Damnation Alley, Mike? Yes, Damnation Alley. Uh, that was Dean Jeffries, wasn't it? Well, he has the original uh, vehicle there in his location outside of Mojave. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we stopped. We actually stopped at Gene Winfield's on the way to Red Rock and, uh, and experienced a uh, festival he was having there. And Gene is like 92, but he's qualified to talk about what it takes to make a chariot. So he's on the video, too. And here's one of the biggest things, Lane. The original chariot was, after the show was off, it hung around for a few years around Fox, and then it was sold to a ski operation up in Big Bear, California. And they used it to haul people and equipment around, and it really got in bad shape and dilapidated. Yeah. And it was found in 1975 and purchased, and then it disappeared. I happened to run into the owner every once in a while back in the day, and I'd say, hey, how's it coming with the restoration? He says, well, I haven't gotten to it yet, but, you know, I have plans. So uh, the calendar, you know, like in the movies, the calendar's flipping by and <laughs> nothing's happening. John Antonellis back east builds his wonderful replica. And then when we were doing this video, I, I made an effort to reach out to this fellow who I hadn't seen in 25 years or more. 
and uh, I was able to reach him and uh, get an update. And we have the only two photos shared with the public in 40 years of the original chariot during its restoration, and that's in our video in part one. That is very cool. We're counting the days when we can see that thing fully restored. That's going to be quite an accomplishment, isn't it? Well, it will be because John Antonellis' chariot is on the East Coast, and I don't know that we'll ever see it out here on the West Coast. So uh, hopefully, before we check out of this immortal world, we'll be able to see the original chariot. I love it. I love the whole idea of it. That's fabulous. Yeah, and that's cool that you got those photos, too. But rewind just a minute there. When did you get the idea to do a follow-up to the restoring Gemini 12? Did it develop over time, or was that always the intention to do a follow-up? Paul and I were looking at the numbers. And we said, you know what, we're getting such a great response and all that. And then Paul realized that there was something that needed to be added to the original miniature. Well, if I might say, we knew that had to be in there, but we did want to post it on Erwin Allen's 100th birthday, which we succeeded at. But right after the launch of the first video, I was in a somewhat serious car accident, and that delayed much of this for the better part of two years or more. So Mm -hmm. that has to be set. Sure. So Paul and I were watching the numbers on the uh, Restoring the Gemini 12 video, and we said, you know, people seem to like this a lot. We have to put the radar on to add it on to the original miniature. Maybe we could answer a few of the questions that they posed, which uh, often included, like, why did you call that ship the Gemini 12? I thought it was the Jupiter 2. (laughs) So we said, we'll do this video, we'll install the radar, we'll answer some questions, and that'll be it. And then I got a, a great idea, which ultimately proved to be our doom. And that is, it, it had been on our bucket list forever to visit the location of the original crash site at Red Rock Canyon. It's not that far. I live in Los Angeles. It's only about 90 minutes, maybe two hours from here. Paul lives uh, further south uh, down the coast, so it's a longer drive for him. But we sure. both wanted to do that, and it's kind of a shame that I've lived here since 1977 and never got around to it, being the big fan that I am. So we said, well, why don't we go to Red Rock and and take the video camera, do a little tour, do our wraparound interviews and things like that. And then I said to to Paul, well, you know, if we're going out there, can you bring along a little small replica like a Mobius kit or something like that? And and we'll get two guys and we'll string it up on wires and and shoot it down past the pinnacle. It won't (laughs) be, you know, anywhere near what they did originally, but we're there. We might as well do that. And then, Paul, what did you say? Well, basically being something of a purist, Mm. I was saying, I think, Mike, it would look something like a hockey puck on wires because (laughs) the relative scale is so small. Why don't I just go ahead and build a new full-size four-foot diameter Gemini 12? And you were saying, we don't have a year to do this. And I said, no, don't worry. Don't worry. I can do it faster than that. And I managed to turn it around in a few months. and. What happened from there? Is it in the second or the third part of this upcoming video, Mike? It's in the second part. Uh, the story of what okay. we did starts right. in the second part because we right. do our, our trip to Red Rock, and then we get back and start making plans. And Paul has this friend. His name is Glenn Lothborough, and Glenn is a former news cameraman for a local station and production person. But he's really good at putting things together, like uh, pipes and rails and things like that. So oh, yeah. Paul brought Glenn in to consult and to help us build the rigs and uh, and actually be part of the project. And 
without uh, Glenn, you know, I don't know how far we would have gotten because uh, he really did a, an amazing job designing these rigs. And there's a rig at the top of the hill, and there's a rig at the bottom of the hill, and, of course, the Lidecker wires are strung between them. And yeah. I, I got to tell you, Lane, I, I think a lot of people, when they say, well, they're going to go out and they're going to recreate that crash sequence, what's the big deal? You know, you get your right. miniature, you know, you put some strings and wire yeah. at the top of the hill and some the bottom. Uh, part of the impact of this video is what it took to get that done and the struggles. Now, part of the struggle could be because we're all in our 60s, you know, we're mm. all a little, you know, a little brown around the edges, as they say. Right. Maybe some guys who are 25 years old could have pulled this off uh, a little bit easier, but there was a, a physical part to this that uh, we show in the video. And part of that is that when Fox shot their production of Lost in Space back in 1965, they were able to drive their trucks and equipment right out to the spot, park it there. Then it was just a few feet to the pinnacle, and then they set up the rigging and all. They probably had 20, 25 guys with them between the camera crew and the riggers. Yeah. And we had limitations on us. The Red Rock Park State Rangers were going to let us do this, but only if we had a limited number of people. Paul, was it was it four was right. our limit? Yeah. yeah. We, so, we had a limit to just four of us, yes. Well, there's three guys who were over 60, and then thankfully uh, Paul's son, Adam, who's uh, around 30, came along with us. It really, really was a strain, and that's what we uh, attempted to show in this, is that you don't go and try and do this without a ton of planning. It was planned like the Normandy invasion. Oh, yeah. That's what makes it so compelling. Paul, you want to jump in here, too. Go ahead. Yeah. One other aspect that we do touch upon is that there must be a licensed use of the California State Park Red Rock Canyon. We needed permits. We needed the California Film Commission permission, etc. And we have to point out, this Red Rock Canyon is almost a vertical face. We had to climb up this thing, and it was all loose gravel. All of us, including my 28-year-old son, slipped multiple times. We all got permanent scars to show from this effort. And you go up this thing, and it was a 125-plus foot run of wires. The logistics that Glenn and I had to figure out, Glenn took a trip out there on his own with what's called a theodolite, mm-hmm. a surveyor transit and he has all the gps and digital information and mike shows an output from it in this video but we had to do all kinds of stress calculations to calculate wire diameter so it doesn't snap and the ship doesn't go crashing to the rocks which almost happened and at the tower at the top i literally had a line tied around my waist with a slip knot so i didn't slip and break my back And with only one hand, I could assemble it up there because of the vertical face. It is impossible without a 15, 20, 25-man crew to build a scaffolding that the Fox prop guys and second-unit people did to get that shot. We did this. Well, I would have to say, not to be immodest, but what we did was a great deal more of an accomplishment than what the studio did back in the day, as Mike said, because they drove right out there. We had to move all of these not lightweight pieces of equipment. The cameras are light, yes, but the speed rail, fittings, tubes, etc., although they're aluminum, there's a lot of them, and they're several hundred pounds. And we had to move it across at least five dry washes, uh, a lot of sand, up rocks, down rocks, on these hiking paths. 
And it took multiple trips for the four of us to do it. It was extremely physically demanding because it is about two-thirds of a mile from the required to park at nearest parking lot to the actual site. So right there, by the time we got out there, we were exhausted being old codgers and all, but we did manage to do it. Yeah. I'd like to add to Paul's description of the actual location. And one of the small disappointments that I have is that when we photographed it, it didn't look as steep as it was, mm-hmm. but he's right. It was very steep, and we were in danger once we were at the top of the, the, the hill to put in the upper rig of falling off. There was barely enough space at the very top for the upper rig and, and not any space for us to like even hardly sit down next to it because when I got up there to take my video, I was uh, struggling to find a place to sit down because I was exhausted for one thing. And uh, I was sitting on the top of a little nub, and if I leaned too far one way or the other, I was going to tumble off. So when you see the video, it doesn't look too bad, but it really, really was. And around the pinnacle formation of the location, it was like somebody, like God took a shovel and scraped, you know, great divots out of the area. So if you wanted to walk from, say, one rig over to the camera position, you had to jump over these great divots and washes uh, in, in the ground. And every square inch of that property was little rocks and uh, uh, up to the size of, say, a, a baseball. Uh, every square inch. And the sandstone formations of the pinnacle itself uh, were rough and craggy. And also, what we discovered is they were kind of delicate. When Paul and I first got there and saw the main pinnacle rock, I looked at the bottom and I said, gosh, it looks like they reinforced it with cement to preserve it. And we eventually found out that it had calcified down at the bottom. Hmm. And uh, it's quite a miracle that as much of the pinnacle and the original formation, including a a rock that looks like an eagle, is still there. Oh, it is. In its form after 55 years after the uh, scene was shot. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, well, so many things had to come together. And then, you know, just the fact that the rock formations look so similar to the way they did in the original footage from the Lost in Space pilot. I mean, it's a miracle. And it's probably just by a hair not too late because these things are calcifying and eroding and everything else over time, I take it. The other thing that surprised me when we first went out there is that from a distance, you can't see them uh, because of the particular time of day we arrived uh, was, I think, in early in the morning. And the position of the sun did not backlight the formation. Uh, it was kind of overcast, so it blended right in what, with the background that was a few hundred feet behind it. So you couldn't actually see it. We had to get right up there before we could see it. You know, as the sun changed positions during the day, it did become... A, a little more obvious, you know, what what it was, but uh, from a distance, you know, it blended right in. And one of our objectives for this production was to shoot that recreation of the crash at the same time of year, so on the same day, at the same hour of the morning, so that the lighting would match up. Mm. You know, it, it's so funny that you mentioned that it doesn't translate necessarily on film, the steep angle of, of the formations oh, no. and everything. Not at all. I, I, I suffer from acrophobia, fear of heights, and after this shoot, I have to tell you, I've got it well under control. <laughs> uh, Mike wisely, and was required by the California Film Commission, ensured us, uh, if you did stumble at the top, you would be potentially seriously injured. It Uh is, 
I would estimate it's a 50 plus, maybe as much as a 60 degree angle in all directions once you're at the top, meaning you're going to go down, you're not going to be able to stop yourself. You're going to go all the way to the bottom. And it's, it is a good deal up in the air. Yeah. Hazard pay was uh, indicated for this trip. It's what it sounds like. Those pinnacles are really beautiful, and it was such an inspired choice to film that crash sequence. Lane, if, if I could chime in there for a second, I think one of the interesting things about what you just said is that the Lydeckers, who were uh, in charge of the uh, actual physical shooting in L.B. Abbott, they made the decision to go way out in the desert because that's really expensive to do that, uh, to, to take the crew out there. Mm-hmm. They, could have, they could have really done it on the back lot at the time. They could have put a couple of paper mache boulders up and, and done it that way. But they chose to go for that look, and uh, boy, what a result they, they got for that. Uh, so, uh, uh, in fact, a lot of people were surprised to learn it was shot on a location and not on the back lot. Yeah, that is so true. Well, one of the things that I would just have to confess, and again, this is a tip of the hat to the beauty of that shot, is having never visited Red Rock Canyon or seen the Pinnacles in person, I was actually surprised how small they were. Because in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're these huge, giant, uh, you know, thousand-foot uh, rock columns. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Uh, a real miniature location. That's all I can say. You get there, and it looks like it is a 1,000 feet up, and when you put a four-foot saucer next to it, you're absolutely convinced it's a 1,000 feet tall. Uh, yeah, uh, Lane, what, what you saw, when you saw uh, Paul and, and myself standing there next to the pinnacle for that still photograph, it, it does create quite a, uh, a shock. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. But again, it, it is so cool to see it. And it's so cool that you chose to do this. I mean, it's <laughs> like... Yeah, be careful what you wish for, right? I'm sure you didn't think you were going to get into all this stuff. But to tell you the truth, when when Paul brought this up, I had all kinds of nightmare scenarios, well, which yeah. all came true, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I I was very worried about it for practical reasons because, again, you know, we're not youngsters anymore, and and to actually do what we were going to do uh, was quite daunting. So I was very concerned. Uh, and, uh, so I, uh, uh, you know, but, I, but my, uh, Mike, I assure you, and, and it did work out. Now I have got to say reshooting this run of 125 plus feet was something that was on my bucket list. I was so impressed with the original footage as a kid. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to see if I can do that. And I think one of the good aspects of what we, Mike, myself, Glenn and my son, we didn't do a color version of Psycho that was shot for shot with the original Hitchcock. We didn't make it exactly. There are some key instances of footage where you go, yeah, there's the quotes money shot. But this is our take on it. It isn't exact, but you know it's real. And in so doing, why reshoot what's been done? Let's elaborate a bit more. And I think that's what we've done here. Oh, and cool. and I'll tell you how one of the ways we did that, and this was Glenn's idea, was to put a GoPro inside the miniature. So yeah. you have, <laughs> yeah, you had the point of view of what if the Robinsons hadn't been frozen, uh, they would have seen this point of view as the ships going down past the rock formations. So that GoPro uh, angle was really something. And uh, Glenn also took his camera on the other side of the rock formation because. The thing about this pinnacle, you move the camera a couple feet either way and you have a whole different look, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Uh, yeah. So 
Uh, he took his camera to the other side of the rock formation, which they also did in 1965, and shot a few angles of the ship going uh, left to right, as opposed to what we were doing, which was what they did in the show. You see the ship going from right to left. So we, we have some extra coverage that they did do in 1965, but we have that GoPro. And while we're on the topic, back in 1965, uh, Howard Lidecker and his crew put smoke pots out there, not only right. to give the uh, the scene a kind of an alien look, but I think it helped hide the wires a little mm-hmm. bit. And we were forbidden from using smoke pots in 2020 because, you know, it's a state park now. You just can't do that kind of stuff. So we said, well, well, we'll just shoot it. It is. Maybe we should use wire removal. And then I finally made the decision. No, Howard Lidecker didn't have that access to, you know, software in those days. And I don't think we should either. Uh, but by the time we got it set up and we shot it, the wires kind of did blend in with the sky. I mean, mm-hmm. on certain angles, if you look carefully, you can right. see them. And as the sun moved further to the uh, midday, uh, they started to show up more, just like they did in 1965. So uh, I'm quite happy that even though you can kind of see the wires, you, you, you really, for the most part, your your mind doesn't really lock on that. You're watching the ship go past the pinnacle. I'll tell you, I think those shots, it's not simple to recreate it, but it is a simple no. idea of you know f- flying a model spaceship down some wires through some terrain like that. And for my money... I'll take that over CGI just about any day. I mean, there's some great CGI stuff out there, but I love the fact that it's a real model in a real environment coming down like that. It's just <laughs> it's breathtaking. And, and what you guys do, as, as you say, Paul, your take on it is also breathtaking. And I, I wholeheartedly yep. endorse what you said about don't remove the wires. I, in fact, that's one of the things I like that they didn't try to you know fudge on some of the bloopers in the Blu-ray set, because to me... That's part of the charm of watching Lost in Space. That's just my opinion, though. Mm-hmm. I also love seeing the wires on Thunderbirds and uh, Fireball XL5. I think it's part of the charm, and and I, I'd rather have them. They talked about when they did the Blu-ray for those shows about uh, erasing them. I said, oh, I hope not, because that's that's the way it was seen. Although we are kind of being unfair in a way, because uh, back in, in the mid-'60s, even in the syndication, our TV sets were mostly 24, 25 inches. And here we are watching, you know, Howard Lidecker's work and Irwin Allen and L.B. Abbott's work on 75-inch high-definition screens. Uh, it's really not fair, but i got to tell you, their That's work true. holds up. It does. I hope you're enjoying this fascinating interview with Paul Lubliner and Mike Clark as much as I am. The thing I love about speaking with these guys is they're not just authorities on all things Irwin Allen, but they're also real fans, and that passion really shines through when you listen to them. They've got more to share about their new YouTube film project. So sit tight for part two of our conversation with Mr. Mike Clark and Paul Libliner. You know, this is kind of rewinding a little bit. One of the things you kind of glossed over was you weren't going to fly the original <laughs> Gemini 12. You spent so much time restoring, rescuing, and uh, you had to make a duplicate of it. Y- right. You displayed some Irwin Allen foresight in, I believe, making a digitized record of the original. And I'm guessing that came in handy when you had to duplicate the, the ship for this venture. Yes. Realizing, as I said, in the back of my mind... Mike not being clued into my 
ulterior motives, <laughs> that maybe we would be restaging a full-size thing. Yes. Uh, the owner, Andre Donk, of the original miniature, um, turned down an outright purchase from a now-deceased, extremely well-known person, a prop collector. Uh, it was an absurd amount of money. Let's just mm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. The other limiting factor as to why we wouldn't be using the original miniature, besides Andre you know, holding me off with a machete, uh, would be the fact that in reinforcing the interior of the ship with three and four layers of additional original polyester resin and fiberglass, and then a dozen uh, newly made birch plywood veneer uh, interior ribs. The thing, like a lot of guys in their 60s, put on weight. It put on so much weight, it would be impossible to fly that ship that uh. far of a distance. You would have been using telephone wires, you know what I mean, a half inch in diameter to get the thing was up around sixty pounds from the twenty odd pounds it originally was. Okay. So I brought it in to uh what is considered by many the finest West Coast facility for digitizing, and that's Q plus labs, and it's run by Mike and Lola Nicker. And they're mm. my friends. Mike as a kid, was very, very much a Lost in Space fan. And when I brought that thing in to them, he was jumping out of his chair with joy. The mm. original, the, he was just delighted. It was, it was fun. And we did a very, very high-end, I mean very high-end digital scanning because, A, if the ship is lost, we do have fires and earthquakes in California. Uh, it would be nice to have a nice digital record of it. Sure. Plus, you know, uh, that allows me, if you want to do a digital recreation in CGI, now you can. If you want to do a 3D output, say it is a smaller possible licensed model kit, that becomes a reality. And if you want the point cloud, which is how it's stored, and you throw a nerve surface over that, getting CAD technical here, you can make it any size you want. You want to build a full-size one? Go right ahead. You can't. <laughs> so I, I conjured up the shape. Let's leave it at that. And yep. made a new ship with three layers of carbon fiber and epoxy. In other oh. words, the same stuff used in a stealth fighter or the B-2 bomber, the very same stuff. And the ship is then very light and immensely strong. The other advantage I had now was the motors for the radar and the fusion core are tiny, and they run on very small, very light lithium oxide batteries. So although the hull itself was a bit heavier than the original single-layer fiberglass and polyester resin, it's at least four or five times as strong. And I can compensate that additional weight and strength in the hull with the smaller and lighter batteries and motors and LEDs instead of bulbs, that sort of thing. So the weight came out within a pound of the original film miniature. So yes, we were able on 42 thousandths of an inch diameter music wire uh, that came in 200 foot spools and gave us a great deal of uh, entertainment during the filming of this video, Mike, wouldn't you say, (laughs) trying to get it out of the box? And it's, you know, the thing's exploding in my hands and you get to see my absolute joy and rapture and trying to untangle it as my son is mountain goat going up a mountain with the other end of it as I'm trying to untangle it. And my hands are bleeding as usual. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was uh, an interesting thing. But yeah, the recreation is exact. 
and let's beautiful. leave it at that. That's beautiful. Yes. Okay, we have to talk later. <laughs> I want one, but that's that's a different topic for Lane. Could I could I chime in here again? Sure. Uh, one of the things when we were out shooting this thing, we we had trial after trial. Just everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The wires tangled. Uh, wires came loose. Uh, just everything was a chore. And again, we were already exhausted uh, ahead of this. When we finally got the miniature to work and go down the wires, I don't know that we were able to enjoy it as much as I was hoping because we were worried that something else would happen, that something else would break and we'd lose the ship. Sure. One thing that I did notice, I was in the position to hear this. When I said action and Paul let it go and it came down the wires, I could hear this very kind of high-pitched little sound, and what it was was the wires going through the uh, ship, and uh, and the friction generated a little tiny kind of a gentle wheeze as it went by me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's so cool that I can hear this uh, on this very quiet desert location. And later on when I was editing, and Glenn gave me the GoPro footage, uh, the, the GoPro was recording sound inside the ship too, so I put that on the tape as well. You can actually be part of that and listen from inside the ship, see the view, and hear the Lidecker wires running through the ship. And I thought, that's really cool to be able to experience that. When I was at the top of the upper rig helping set up some of this, I kept hearing this twang sound. And what it was, was uh, the original run was 150 feet, was it, Paul? Something like that, yeah. Okay. So when you get a wire that long, and the wind uh, jostles it or the ship jostles it, you get that twanging sound, uh, which is what Ben Burt kind of used for his Star Wars sound effects. It's yeah. like when he went out in the desert and hit, uh, or not power lines, but telephone guy wires. Guy wires. Uh, yeah. You know, that ba-dong, ba-dong. Yeah. And I could hear that at the top of the rig. So those are little small things that I, I couldn't really put in the tape because they were so personal to me. Right. Uh, but uh, that's that's... The other thing that was kind of personal is after uh, <laughs> after our shoot was finished the second day and we started striking around noon, we had to strike because the winds were going to be kicking up in the afternoon. And if the winds yeah. got a hold of the ship, who knew what was going to happen? So we struck then, and uh, I had to wait out there for a while for the guys to get back. I couldn't push the rig myself. And I lay down in the desert like a, a prospector who'd run mm. out of water, mm-hmm. and I was watching the buzzards <laughs> up above and thinking, boy, I hope they, uh, I hope they don't think I'm dead or anything because I was so tired. I was just laying there in the desert. And that was also a unique experience. That's amazing. Yeah, Glenn and I, Glenn and I were striking with my uh, son's help from noon till about four. The last two takes we took, the wind started kicking up. Now the ship at 20 something pounds and 125 feet of wire uh, had the winds peaked as they did at 60 to 70 mile an hour gusts later that afternoon. It would have picked up that ship, ripped the wires out of the mountings, and flung it a good several hundred feet across the desert into some obstacle that would have destroyed it. So we yeah, really I had a... We, I think we all almost got knocked over by those winds. Uh, yeah. Well, Glenn and I did. You, you were, you know, buzzard feed waiting there. And Glenn and I were still unloading and or loading up, and we were both blown over, for real. No yeah. joke. And a lot of the materials went flying. We spent a lot of time chasing stuff. 
uh, like a plastic lid to the containers to put the stuff in the courts. But, um, yeah, there was, uh, there was quite a bit of trepidation when I was up at the top pulling the thing back up and then letting it back down each time. That, as you said, Mike, I didn't especially enjoy that. I just wanted to get the footage in the can and get out of there. It was not fun. It was a chore. It was work, but the results are well worth it, in my view. Um, I, I did at yeah. one point insist that Paul come down off the top of the hill and watch the monitor so that he could see yeah. it right there uh-huh. and, and you know confirm that uh, everything was the way we hoped it would be. And uh, yeah. uh, by the way, Lane, one of the other things we learned is w- when I was thinking up the photography for this, we had three isolated cameras and then the GoPro because uh, uh, we wanted to make sure we'd get this in the can if the ship only had one take in it. Right. Fortunately, we were able to shoot about a dozen takes, but we had three cameras rolling uh, each time. The Hero camera, which is the one where the uh, ship flies past the pinnacle right to left, I said as a slow motion camera, uh, because I figured that's what they did originally. Mm-hmm. And then when it started coming down, when the Gemini 12 started coming down the wires, I realized, oh my God, it's the right speed. It's, uh, you know, we had the same weight mm-hmm. as the original miniature, the same slope. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, it was, it was the right speed. I didn't need to shoot in slow motion. So that was one of those little odd things I discovered. And what I did between the first attempt, which is described in this video, and the second attempt is we changed the wire itself. And also what I did, I had fitted the miniature with the original copper tubes that the original ship had. Mm-hmm. And the ends, I then added coil springs, which the Lidecker's installed in the original miniature. Compressed, compression springs are already compacted that the wires would slide on because you have the windings of a coil. So there's just a little bit of metal touching the right. wire for very low friction. And as the chute progressed, the coating to protect the Lidecker wires from rust, that began to wear off and it got slick. And with each progressive take, the ship was going faster and faster <laughs> and faster. And at one point, I actually didn't stop it in time because I did have a fishing line just after the bubble on the top with a hidden little ring so that it wouldn't slam into the bottom tower. And one time, I didn't judge it right, and it went in. And that is in the video. And you see it, and you hear it, and it goes zoom, bang. <laughs> No damage, but it was just because we had lots of foam wrapped around the bottom end, so it didn't get destroyed. But yeah. it was always a risky bit of a wire letting go, a collision, something going wrong, oh, yeah. and I'd lose the miniature, and that would be the end of the shoot. Because oh. there's no way three old guys are going to go out and do this a third time. It was two strikes <laughs> and you're out. So I think so, we hit a home run. Oh, you hit a home run for sure. I mean, and as I said, again, I'll, I'll footstomp this. The challenges the overcoming adversity, the whole thing. It's just a really compelling story. You know, put aside what great subject matter it is to recreate this unbelievable special effects shot. It's just, it's mind-blowing. And the kicker was at the very end, I guess you guys wrapped up your shoot like a week before the whole country got shot down with the COVID virus. So the state parks would have been closed. So you literally made it just in time on so many levels, didn't you? Yep. We wouldn't be able to do it from that point on to this day. We would still not be able to be permitted, legitimately licensed, permitted to go out there and shoot what we did. We made it in the nick of time. Beautiful. You you know, Lane, this reminds me of uh, movies and TV shows. 
that were shot during historic periods. Like uh, in World War II, you know, a lot of the Warner Brothers cartoons would have references to, uh, yeah, you know, the war, and they would talk about how you had to get a sticker for meat yeah. and all that. And I have a feeling in the future, uh, everybody is going to see all these productions of this time as part of that time, uh, because we do talk about the uh, the COVID uh, situation in the video, because that's what was actually going on at the time. And, and also, uh, while we're talking about this, I'd like to tip my hat to uh, a guy who really helped us out on this, uh, and his name is David Ice. Uh, and that's uh, ICE. Uh, mm-hmm. He had done his own video about Red Rock Canyon about 15, 17 years ago. And he took a two foot uh, Jupiter 2 out there, but he wasn't able to, do, to put it on strings, but he, he did climb up on that pinnacle. And his video is on YouTube. So when I saw that, I was able to contact him and get some help and some advice and GPS coordinates, among other things. And uh, David came out with uh, a fellow on the third day of our shoot and shot the most incredible behind-the-scenes footage. And that's how you're able to see the ship almost lost, uh, uh-huh. you know, due to a, a wire don't, problem. And Don't give it away, Mike. You're spoiling it. You're spoiling it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I say almost lost. But he also took some angles from the side, which I think are among the best in the video. So i got to say thanks to David Ice and, of course, thanks to Kevin Burns, who allowed us to use the clips uh, that we had used in the original Restoring the Gemini 12 video. Kevin has always been the savior of the show and continues mm-hmm. to be. And uh, For sure. Andre, Andre Daunt, who uh, you know allowed us to shoot that second shoot back at his place and... Uh, and other people who really supported us in this project. And a tip of the hat, by the way, to all the fans over the years who have done their own recreations of their shows. And, you know, it started off in the early 70s with Super 8, and I've seen Star Trek and Lost in Space fan projects from that time. And then it got bigger and better in Star Wars. They did Hardware Wars and other takeoffs. Then people were able to start making their own props with resin, and then, you know, fast forward to the 3D printing era, and that, that Star Trek uh, Continues series, uh, that's really amazing. And then there was that fellow up in Ticonderoga who also has a, an open tour of recreations of the original Star Trek sets uh, and, and other fan productions. We're not the first ones to, to be out there in Red Rock Canyon, you know, interested in Lost in Space and shooting some video, but we are the first ones to go this far with, with the project. But we stand on the shoulders of all the other people, all the other fan projects, and uh, you know we uh, consider ourselves part of that genre now. If, if I might add, I really have to give a very, very, very special thanks to the tireless efforts of one Glenn Loughborough, because he went out many times prior to our going out the second and third times with his theodolite, like I said, his surveyor's transit, so that he and I could mathematically work out the 14.7 uh, degree angle downward descent. We've got those wires within inches of exactly mm. where they were in the original production. And Glenn, being a professional cameraman for 40 years in the news biz, uh, and editor, he, uh, I might say, he had his own footage taken both down at the spire and from the other side. And I'd like to point out, he will probably be doing an eye candy effects reel with some smoke or whatnot added uh, of his take of what he saw when he was out there doing this. So there may be an adjunct follow-up video to this one still. Yeah. 
We'll be putting Glenn's video up on the Gemini 12 channel, which is where the restoring the Gemini 12 and the relaunching the Gemini 12 live. So uh, I think everybody will be pleased with Glenn's uh, efforts. That's beautiful. Well, yep. we're, we're certainly looking forward to that. I guess this is a good point for me to uh, round things out with a philosophical question, I suppose, for both of you gentlemen. There seems to be, like you talk about this phenomena among fans of genre TV and film, to do these over-the-top projects, to overcome all kinds of adversity, and, and to kind of be a part of this whole thing. What do you guys think is going on there? What's this all about? Why are fans so inspired to do this? In my opinion, um, because we didn't get enough as kids. We want more. Mm. And the newer productions, as good as they are, and they are, they're well-written, well-directed, extremely high-end productions, beautiful production value. We want to go back to being with a little kid and relive that moment the first time you saw it and your eyes became as big as the saucer you were looking at on screen. Mm. It was just a wonderful feeling of awe, overused word as it is. That's how I view it. That's why I say I remember the first airing in September of 65 of Lost in Space and that long shot descending Red Rock Canyon of the then on TV named Jupiter 2, but in the pilot Gemini 12. And I remember going, wow, that looks like a real flying saucer. Did they use a real flying saucer when I was 11? <laughs> yeah, so magic. It, it, it was magic. And people who are able uh, to self-indulge, I have to say that this is a self-indulgence to do this. And you live the moment recapturing what the second unit film crew went through, and you realize it's just a bleep job. <laughs> <laughs> but we get the thrill in looking at what we did with that sensation of pride that, yes, I helped do that. I am the model maker who made that silly spaceship and with Glenn flew it down those wires. I mean, it is an ego-gratifying self-indulgence that allows you to relive in a different way as an adult your childhood memories that were so enjoyable. What do you think, Mike? Well, I'd have to agree with Paul on that. Uh, my background is in television production, but even as a little kid, I was watching the lighting and the camera work, and I was always curious. Even though I enjoyed the shows for what they were at, on face value, I always wanted to know how they did it. And so uh, my writing for Starlog over the years was kind of seeking to answer those questions and learn more and meet those people who, who made the magic happen, and that's why I was thrilled to have Bill Krieber on a, a panel that I did for the Lost in Space Convention back in 1998. And oh, yeah. Kevin Burns allowed us to use a clip, so uh, there's an actual clip of Bill Krieber uh, from the convention in 1998. And again, I mentioned earlier the tape is dedicated to him. He passed away in 2019, and I saw him a few times over the years, and uh, I don't know if he ever understood the impact that his work had on the audience, because he, to him it was kind of a job, but uh, right. the the impact of his designs and his imagination uh, on Lost in Space and Voyage and Time Tunnel and Planet of the Apes had a tremendous impact, and maybe towards the end he did kind of understand that. I hope so. 
Yeah. It's a shame some of the people that were involved in these productions never got to experience the adulation of the fans going to conventions and everything. So, But you guys are keeping the fires burning. That's great. I know this was quite an ordeal, but I just have to ask, is this the final chapter in the story of the Gemini 12 for you two, or could there possibly be another follow-up to this fantastic follow-up in the future? Speaking for myself, I don't know how we could top ourselves. I'd say I'd rather go out on top than uh, <laughs> yeah. than, uh, than do something else. Yeah. Well, as I've already mentioned, Glenn is doing some post-production work on his footage. And to be very honest, um, right now I am looking at an exact replica of the Gemini 12 launch tower wow. in my living room. Wow. So... There may be yet, as I've suggested, just an eye candy four minute or so follow up effects reel with the footage from this shoot and a bit more. Let's leave it at that. Wow. Well, I don't know how you could possibly top this effort because it was absolutely captivating. And I feel almost guilty that I got a sneak preview of it, but uh, not that guilty. Thank you. Thank you again for letting (laughs) me get in on this classified program here. And now fans out there, boy, they have a treat for the eyes in store for them. So that may be a good place to leave this discussion for now. But rest assured, gentlemen, if you do have another project in the future, we'd be more than happy to get you back on the show to talk about it. Um, So I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you, Mike, and Paul. Uh, Mike, I know you're on Facebook. Is that the best place going forward for folks to catch up with you and what you're doing? And Well, I, I have a personal Facebook account, but uh, anybody who's interested in television history can go to my uh, big13big13.com website and learn about the history of WTVT in Tampa, Florida. Uh, I also run uh, two Facebook pages, one is for uh, Paul Winchell, the great ventriloquist and TV pioneer, mm-hmm. and his character Jerry Mahoney. So it's called Winchell-Mahoney Time. Uh, all the baby boomers remember Paul. He was uh, on TV from the late 40s all the way through the 70s, and of course he was the voice of Tigger uh, for Disney's Winnie the Pooh, so I have that. I also run a Jerry Anderson Fireball XL5 Supercar Facebook page, uh, that uh, is all about those shows. So uh, I hope anybody who likes them will visit, join, and uh, and also please subscribe to the Gemini 12 channel because uh, uh, then you'll get notices uh, for future things. Uh, I might, you know, send out a couple of outtakes or something in the future that didn't make it in there once I once I catch my breath. Oh, that's great. We'll put uh, links in the show notes for this episode to all those places. Now, Paul, your day job. You have a business making a scale model railroad locomotives and so forth. I think that's HighlinersOnline.com. Yeah. Correct. If you're interested in the same diesel engine that Superman jumped over in the first Christopher Reeves feature, that sort of thing in the color episodes of the George Reeves Superman, you can see it in the opening there. I make a, an exact scale model kit for that locomotive, and uh, it's rather well regarded. And uh, with the built ones... I was sent to China to set up manufacturing, and so far we've sold something on the order of about 300,000 of them, so it's it's pretty well respected. But if you're not into that thing, that's fine, too. Um, hopefully, uh, if I am fortunate enough to be granted a license to produce a small one-fifth scale of the four-foot diameter Gemini 12 collectible finished model of the ship, 
and also possibly a model kit, uh, mm. which would come out under highliners, uh, of the digital scans of the original Gemini 12 miniatures. So it will be absolutely perfectly rendered and it will have spinning fusion core lights. The design is done. All the work is in the computer. And we do show a bit of it, just a few moments of it in this video. And uh, I'm hoping for the best as far as that goes. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that because, you know, of course, there are model kits of the Jupiter too. But uh, as far as I know, there's no Gemini 12 model kit or anything. There never has been a differentiation in any of the model kits, and they are significantly different. Right. And uh, unfortunately, with most science fiction model kits, they aren't all that well-researched, except for what Gary Kerr, the well-known uh, investigative researcher, has done for the Starship Enterprise. Uh, other model kits aren't done quite to that same standard, and they're more or less caricatures rather than scale models of sure. the film miniatures. Uh, in this instance, both the interior of this uh, model and the exterior are correct to the miniature. I'm not putting people in freezing tubes. It right. is what we've seen in a miniature. So I, it's a matter of integrity and uh, an attempt to recreate what you would like to have, but where are you going to put a four-foot diameter saucer, to be honest? Um, <laughs> oh, so. man. Well, great. Oh, man. That sounds promising. So we'll stand by for more news on that. Well, guess what, guys? I've been really greedy with your time, and I want to just round things out by saying thank you so much, Mike and Paul, for coming on the show and sharing your time with us and talking about this great new film and reviewing some of the uh, previous film. This is just going to be such a treat for Lost in Space, Irwin Allen fans everywhere. And I'm just delighted that you spent the time today to talk to us about it. So thank you so much for joining us here on Alpha Control. Thank you, Lane. Okay, great. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with Mike Clark and Paul Lubliner. I really enjoyed getting to hear some of the -the behind-the-scenes details that went into producing their latest film. If you haven't seen it already, check out the new Gemini 12 YouTube channel, which is linked in the episode show notes. You won't believe your eyes. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.